the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's an amazing statement. Freed from sin. Problem is, we still sin, don't we? So what is Paul talking about? Well, that is what we will explore today in Romans chapter 6. Join us for Abounding Grace. was the founder of the Salvation Army who was approached by a young zealot who asked him if he was saved, to which he responded, do you mean, am I saved? Have I been saved? Or am I being saved? And there are three elements to our salvation, and we'll look at one of them here today on Abounding Grace. Welcome to the program. Pastor Gary Wagner takes us back to chapter 6 of Romans, verses 1 through 14. Freed from sin. Here's Pastor Gary with more. Freed from sin. Many years have passed since our Lord Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again. And toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he gave the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins, which is a constant reminder to the church of every age that unless we abide in Christ, the oil of our lamps will burn out. And then we live in a world of sin. We've already been warned in Scripture that where iniquity bounds, the love of many will grow cold. When we look at our own lives, there is a lot of sin there. If you could look into my life, you would see there is a lot of sin there. We're all very, very weak. Sometimes so much so that we are tempted to give up, despair, doubt. Do I really know the Lord? Am I really in his hand? Is all this really going to turn out okay in the end? In times like that, these pa- this passage has always been a tremendous comfort to me because it has reminded me that in and of myself, I have no strength. Now, I know that seems like an odd way to be comforted, but I like to be told the truth. I need to be told that I have no strength. I have no endurance. I have no power to keep myself in the faith. I have no wisdom. I have no ability to resist sin. I have no light to bring me out of dark places. There is not a solution in the back of my mind for the problems of my life. That if I am just tweaked the right way, that solution is going to present itself. I have nothing, but Christ has everything. And in union with him, we have more than enough strength. In fact, we have divine strength divine omnipotence to resist sin, to stay faithful to the Lord in difficult times, even when 
everyone we see with our eyes is going after silly trifles. If you were to just step back for a minute, could you imagine how silly our culture is that we would follow and be interested in the lives of actors and celebrities and athletes and politicians? I mean, we are a silly, silly people. That people would have whole livelihoods developed around fantasy sport leagues. I think I'll just sit around and play Scrabble for the rest of my life. Gentlemen, is there a fantasy sport league for that? Oh, probably. I mean, we are a silly people because we are a dead people. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We love our favorite television programs. We love our favorite blogs. Things that are very, very small significance. And for many, this becomes their life. It is no wonder we are so weak. We need to be brought back to where strength comes from. And of course, it comes from Christ. And we've been learning in Romans 6... That when God extends his grace to us, we can't say, hey, since God has promised to forgive me, sin is not that big of a deal. So let's go ahead and sin a little bit. I can go ahead and be ugly to my wife because I can always ask for forgiveness later. I can go ahead and look at what I want to look at on the computer and I can always ask for forgiveness later. God is just this big, squishy teddy bear, a cotton candy God, and he'll be very kind and forgive all my flaws, and everything will be okay. Paul says, wrong. God loves his son too much to treat his cross with such contempt. Because from the Lord Jesus Christ, we not only draw righteousness that will stand before the holy gaze of God. But we also draw power unto godliness because we are one with him. He says in verse 4, we are buried with him in baptism. Of which baptism here means we are in union with him. That we are baptized into a union with Christ so that we receive power in his death and his resurrection in our lives. Just like Christ died to the power of sin, we've died to the power of sin, if we know him. Just like he rose to newness of life, we have risen to newness of life. Now today, we begin with verse 5, and Paul makes the same point, just using a different metaphor, probably to make it a little more clear. He says, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. The verb planted together, first of all, is passive. Because God does the planting. We don't do it. It's not our walking an aisle. It's not our tears. It's not our decision. To know this life, God has to do this. Now don't say... Well, if God has to do it, then there's nothing for me to do. Really? Is that how we're supposed to respond when God says, well, you can't do this, so I've got to do it. So we can just sit back and say, 
Well, then, I guess I'm excused. Again, wrong. If we hear in Scripture that God does something, then what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to confess our weakness, and not passively, but to engage ourselves with our great need of Him and give Him no rest until He does what He has promised to do. And then the oil won't go out of our lamps. And then we won't despair because the more we pray, the more God gives us grace, even in ways that we can't see. Because when we call on him, he hears us, beloved, in the day of trouble, and he will deliver us. The second thing we learn about this verb is not only that God does it, but it is a verb that expresses in the clearest possible way our union with Christ. It means to be joined with. It's like the idea of a vine being grafted onto a bigger vine or a larger vine. So we, are, so we were once on Adam's dead tree, but God in his power has now grafted us into the living green tree that is Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 61 when he said that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So here is a glorious truth. We are so closely identified with the Lord Jesus Christ now. God has planted us unto him, engrafted us, united us to him, that we are forever after identified with he who is our head. It is no longer I who live. The ego, of course, is all of me. It's all about Gary. But it should be. It is no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. God has done this work. It's not based on my feelings. My experience of it in this life is always going to lag behind the reality of it in God's eyes. So don't despair, as we will see in a little bit when the experience of it is, I can still see sin in my life. So how can I be engrafted onto Christ? He is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. But don't forget, our experience of this union in this life always lags behind the reality of it. So what does faith do? Faith looks at the reality and it doesn't focus on the experience. You see, this is what keeps us from morbid introspection. We do need to look because until we look at ourselves and until we honestly deal with our weaknesses, we are never going to run to Christ. But when we look at ourselves... We don't stay there. When we look at our children, uh, we don't stay there, putting them under a microscope, making them feel like they are in a bubble that nothing they do measures up. No, as with our children, so with ourselves. We look, we are, being, we are honest, and we go to Christ because He is the vine 
who not only gives us new life in terms of righteousness and peace with God, but he also gives us new life in terms of the ongoing nourishment that we draw from him. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and he that abides in me does what? He sits there like a lump on a log? No, he who abides in me brings forth much fruit. Why? Because God plants us into Christ. And from Jesus, the living vine, vine, the resurrected Lord, we draw strength, virtue, power, his life within us. Sometimes when I have read John 15 in the past, I've de- developed kind of a, a guilt complex. And I, I start looking around and I ask myself, Where is the fruit? That's an important exercise for all of us. But it needs to be briefer than the main exercise, which is, Lord Jesus, I don't see the fruit in my life that I see in you. And I need your fruitfulness. Philippians 1.11 says, The fruits of righteousness that come by Jesus Christ. I need you, Lord, to make me fruitful as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a student, as a business owner, as a person involved in the affairs of this life. I need for you to make me fruitful. And Jesus says, okay, I'll make you fruitful. Because 2 Peter 1.8, no one knows Jesus is going, no one who knows Jesus is going to be barren or unfruitful. Why? Because he is the living vine. So you look at this and say, but I don't feel very fruitful. What am I supposed to do about it? God says, I'm not going to do anything just to make your feelings get better. When each one of us, me too, who needs to have this sense of God, God's not finished working in me. I haven't arrived yet. I need more fruit. Where do I go? (coughs) To Jesus. Because I have been planted into him. I need to look away from myself and I need to look to him. I need to stop having conversations with myself and call upon him. I need to look to him. He alone is the living vine. He is the green olive tree in the house of the Lord. He is the one who stands with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Grace unto grace, and he says, I've received it to share it with you. Now, specifically in verse 5, we are said to be planted together in the likeness of his sin. The word like is very important because we've been studying in Romans 6 how that Jesus' death to sin on the cross is our death to sin. We saw that last week. Likeness reminds us that this isn't some weird way in which I have kind of died, kind of died on the cross with Jesus. Because then it's not my union with him that saves me. It's more like my death on the cross that saves me. So likeness restores a sense of covenant. Remember how we are represented in Adam? Adam sinned and we all sinned in him. 
It wasn't like we stretched out our hand and took the fruit ourselves, as the analogy has often been said. It is that he sinned in our place because God had joined us to him. He was our head, the head of all humanity. But in Jesus, we have a new Adam and we are engrafted together in the likeness of his death. So what does that mean? What his death meant for him, it means for us. What Jesus' death meant for him, it means for us. Now, what did Jesus' death mean for him? He died to the curse of sin. In other words, he paid the whole price that our sins deserved, the wrath and the judgment of God. So when you believe in Jesus, what does that mean? It means here, therefore, there is now no more condemnation for us in Christ. Are you sincerely clinging to Jesus today and looking to him as your life and your hope? Then, beloved, you are under no condemnation. No one can lay a charge against you, not your own conscience, not the devil, not even God. Because he respects the sufferings and obedience of his son too much. So none who look to the Lord Jesus Christ will ever be put to shame. That is what the death of Jesus means for you. When you look to the Lord Jesus and believe the gospel, the power, the sufficiency of his death is applied to you. So that you are delivered from its curse and the penalty of sin. But now notice the second half of verse 5. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. We saw that also last week. He rose from the dead. Why did he rise from the dead? Was it to make a big show? Look at me, I won. No. But why do men die? The wages of sin is death. Why did Jesus rise? To fully satisfy the wages of our sin. He paid them. And it's not possible any longer for death to hold him. For by one offering, he consecrated to God forever those who are being made holy by the works of the Holy Spirit. Three days later, he rose from the dead to newness of life. And guess what? Now you are engrafted. You are joined with him in that resurrection. And that means not only are you delivered from the curse of sin, it's judgment, but you are delivered from its power. Sin shall have dominion, no, no, shall not have dominion over you, he says in this very passage. Why? Because Jesus has broken that dominion of sin. Now, again, we tremble. I do. I see so much sin in my life. So how is it possible that the apostle can say, we have been delivered from the power of sin, from the dominion of it, which he says in verse 6 directly. So let's actually look at verse 6. How can he say that the old man is crucified with him? And by the way, we often speak of our old man as if he's still alive. But he is not. Because the verb tense here is past 
historical once for all. Our old man was crucified with Christ in principle on the cross. And when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he slays that old man. The death penalty that Jesus paid on the cross for us is applied to the old man of sin. And he is slaughtered. Why? Continuing in verse 6. So the body of sin might be destroyed. These are high phrases. That the body of sin. Does that just mean the mass of sin? No, I think he is actually referring to our bodies here. Why is that? For several reasons. One, we are very conscious of the fact that we sin with our body. And I'm not just thinking here, nor was Paul, of sexual sins. Think of the tongue. It is a fire of the world of iniquity. What fires did our tongue kindle this week? Our eyes, you know, these eyes are not treacherous guardians. They are treacherous guardians, aren't they? They should be directed to the glory of God, but they are looking around. Lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the body. We are very conscious of living in a sinned, weakened, decaying body. Notice also that Paul doesn't mention in verse 6 that the sin in your heart might be destroyed. We would have liked him to have worded it in that way. Why? Because how many people do we run into who say, well, you know, in my heart of hearts, I really love the Lord Jesus, but I'm living like hell in the world. I know many people like that, and I'm sure most of you know some. You can't judge me. It doesn't matter how I live out there. It doesn't matter how I dress. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. This life doesn't count so much. What counts is what's in my heart. But you see, my body is no less or more filthy than my heart, my mind, my will, my affections. So Paul is bringing out here by mentioning that the body of sin might be destroyed, that it might be destroyed in its totality, just like the whole man is corrupted by sin. So the whole man, body and soul, is united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. By the way, the purpose clause here, when he says in verse 6 that the body of sin might be destroyed, it is a purpose clause saying The reason the old man is crucified in all of those who are united to Christ is so the body of sin might be destroyed and that we might serve. We might not serve it any longer. He's going to have a lot to say about that idea toward the end of chapter 6, that we might not serve sin any longer. Let me express that. Let me express this just as personal as I possibly can. Union with Christ is not an empty idea. It's not a religious symbol. It is a present reality. By the way, the the verb at the end of verse 6 is a present infinitive. In other words, so that I might not be sinning now. This is the present defining reality in the life of the believer, that I am no longer a slave of sin. And it is because I am in union with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. 
My old man has been crucified with him, and the body of sins have been destroyed. The stronghold of sin has been broken. Now, now again, we are very conscious of the fact that there is still a lot of sin in our lives. We feel like Paul in Romans 7, 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. I want to do good, but I don't do it. I don't want to do evil, but I find myself doing it. I'm like a divided soul, he says. Who is going to deliver me? You know, we need to remember Lazarus was alive when he walked out of the tomb. But remember, he was still clothed with his grave cloth. And it's important since our fullness of life and union with Jesus is not completely unwrapped in this life. We're alive. We couldn't resist sin at all if we weren't alive. He has made us alive. He is bringing his life into us. And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ today, understand it's because God has put you in union with his son and he has applied the death of Christ to the sin in your life. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org. And if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org. Or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.